I am on. Can you hear me? It'll come in a few seconds. Chief, is that's good timing, Don. <laughs> what a beautiful morning. So good to be with you all this morning. Um, I know that sometimes we play games of things you didn't know about us. So something... <laughs> I actually, you know, I used to be a vacuum cleaner salesman. If only I had known you in those days. <laughs> Kelly loves vacuum cleaners. Okay. But something that I actually planned on telling you, you might not know about me, when I finished school, I finished school quite young, and I went to the States as a Rotary Exchange student at the tender age of 17. And uh, right after my first year of, of high school, my last year of high school, I packed my bags and I moved to Upper Michigan. If anybody knows Michigan, it's two myths like this. Detroit's down here. You got Upper Michigan, which is in Lake Superior. There's a Keweenaw Peninsula, and there's a town here called Houghton, Michigan. So I'm higher than most of inhabited Canada. So I'm higher than Toronto. And it snows six months of the year. It was a life-changing and absolutely invaluable experience for me. And my mom is in the second row here, and she can attest to this next part. Not all of it was fun. Um, have you ever been really homesick? Like, I'm talking doubled up in bed or wherever you are. Um, this, this day is unbearable kind of homesick. Now, home might be a, a place to you. It might be a building. It might be a country. It might be a person. For some people, it's coming home to their dog after a long journey. <laughs> but you might identify with this feeling. For the first couple months in the U.S., probably almost until about my 18th birthday, I had moments of real homesickness, really bad. As much as I loved being there, it just wasn't home. And I struggled with this aching yearn inside of me. And I think we all have that home calling, that when we're away for too long, our body, our mind, and our soul just seems to, to take such a strain, we can't even describe the feeling in words. Well, it's my prayer this morning that when you walk out those doors today, you have a sense of incredible homesickness. And I'm going to take the next 30 minutes to explain why. So I'm not sure if you've noticed, but when they dish out the sermons here, they tend to give me the best ones. <laughs> I always get the climax, right? So we're halfway through our series on etern eternal beings in a temporary world, eternal beings in a temporary world, and I get to speak on heaven. And I can't imagine a subject I'd rather talk about than heaven. If you're new to church or, or back after a long time, this is absolutely the perfect moment to dip your toe back in. Because this is the point, right? I mean, this is where it all leads to. This is what we've been building towards since creation, since the fall. This is what nature groans for and our hearts yearn for. This is what that old Rolling Stone sings about when he says, I just can't get any satisfaction. <laughs> well, today, you're going to understand why. A preschool teacher said to her class, how do you get to heaven? And Johnny put up his hand and he said, you've got to die. <laughs> and now that's actually true. But because we know heaven exists as Christ follows, death has lost its sting. 
We're going to look at what the Bible teaches about heaven, and, and we're going to look at a lot of verses, so get your Bibles out or your view versions and get ready for that. What can we know for sure? I mean, for many of us, eternity is like this blurry mystery. We kind of push it out of our minds, and we're like, I'll deal with it when I get there kind of thing. We're like, we're like I'll think about it when I get there. We're finite beings trying to understand infinity and its impossible. But the truth is what we believe here, what we believe about now shapes how we live. What we believe about the future shapes how we live in the present. What we believe about the future shapes how we live in the present. Now, I don't know what you believe about God. Uh, Luke, uh, two weeks ago, he touched on the fact that many people are atheists. They believe there is no God. Um, other people are, are deists. They believe there is a God, but he's kind of unattached and uninvolved in our lives. He's distant. But these faiths, they carry a belief about the future that determines how you live in the present. In fact, when you look at civilizations throughout history, most seem to have some sort of faith or hope about the world on the other side of death. From the Aborigines in Australia who believe in the land on the far side of the western horizon to the Mexicans and the Peruvians who believe that when they die they will go to either the sun or the moon or the ancient Babylonians who, whose beliefs were captured in the tale of Gilgamesh and they refer to a place where heroes go to rest and the tale even hints at a tree of life. It seems that certainly most if not all cultures have a sense that this life is not the end. And how we live here shapes in some way what we will experience there. Human beings have an innate sense of the eternal. And for us as Christians, as Christ followers, the subject of heaven is critical for our discipleship. J.C. Riley said this, a man who's about to set sail for Australia or New Zealand to settle is naturally anxious to know something about his future, its climate, its employments, its inhabitants, its ways, its customs. All these subjects are of deep interest to him. You're leaving the land of your nativity. You're going to spend the rest of your life in a new hemisphere. It would abode, it would be strange indeed if you did not desire information about your new abode. Now surely, if we hope to dwell forever in that better country, even a heavenly one, we ought to seek all the knowledge we can about it. Before we go to our eternal home, we should try to become acquainted with it. Jonathan Edwards, the uh, great Puritan preacher, said this of heaven. It becomes us to spend this life only as a journey toward heaven, to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life, why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and our true happiness? In fact, it was Edwards who, in his early 20s, he sat down to compose a, a list of resolutions for how he should spend his life. And this is one of his resolutions. Resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. In the other world. How do we obtain happiness in the other world? Let's dive in. 
what does heaven mean in the Bible? It's actually a very interesting word when it comes to the Bible because in the Bible we have different instances of heaven meaning different things. And there are in fact at least three different meanings for the word heaven in the Bible. First, the heaven can mean the atmosphere. In other words, the air above it, which envelops this planet. In Isaiah 55 verse 10, we read the following. For as the rain and the snow come down from the heavens and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Secondly, heaven can mean space or, or outer space. Genesis 1 verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens that give light upon the earth. Psalm 19 verse one, which we sing really often, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, obviously today we're not focusing on the atmosphere or space when it comes to heaven, but there is a connection between our understanding of heaven and the heavens that the Bible speaks of. It's not just a lack of a Hebrew word that they use the same word all over. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sheer size and the expanse speak to the wonder of what we're going to speak of as the place called heaven today. They remind us about the limitations of our ability to comprehend the vastness of the sky and the atmosphere and the stars and the heavens and the galaxies. And, and we talk about thousands of light years away and, and our mind goes, what? They declare the greatness and the grandness of a God who is so completely greater than us. The atmosphere and the stars whet our appetite. They lift our gaze upwards in awe and wonder at the incredible God of the heavens. Thirdly, the Bible speaks of the place called heaven. In Isaiah 63 verse 15, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. The most distinguishing characteristic of heaven is that it is the dwelling place of God. Heaven is God's home. God is its center. Oh, but you say, but God is everywhere. Yes, God is everywhere, but heaven is his home. It's the place where God fully reveals himself. It's where he can be truly seen for who he really is in the fullness of his being, our Father who art in heaven. It's the place where the glory of God is most purely and clearly displayed. In fact, heaven is a place created for God's glory, where his glory is most fully known. It is a holy place. It is an indestructible place. On earth, God's glory has been diminished by the fall. When sin entered the world and, and marred everything on earth, which is separate from heaven, heaven was immune to the effects of the fall. Heaven is still the place where the glory of God shines and radiates unhindered by sin and by selfishness, which is why it is the great hope of the world. 
despite all the sin and the tragedy that pervades the earth, there is still a place, there is still a place that has been untouched, uncontaminated, that is pure, where the glory of God radiates in its full transcendent beauty. There is no evil there. Satan has been banished from heaven. Therefore, it is the place from which God launches his counterattack into our world. Heaven invades earth through Christ, and then through the church, the invasion continues, transforming earth into heaven's likeness. God's glory comes down to invade the brokenness of our our world, bringing life, transformation, and hope. Heaven is once again filling the earth with God's glory. Now, I love the birds in my garden. I, I, I love the wild birds. I've, I've got um, these sunbirds that love this particular thing here. And I've got these, the sunbirds see it first, but I've got these sweet wax bills and I've got the cape sparrows and I've got the vitorchis and they, they all come into my garden. I can sit on, on my new deck and I can watch them for hours and hours and hours. But there's a lot of water in my garden. I've got a fish pond, I've got a swimming pool, I've got a bird bath, I've got all sources of water, but they like this guy. You see, I take water, normal water, and a bit of sugar. You see, I'm giving these birds diabetes and you're wondering, oh, you know. And I take a little drop of food coloring like that, right? Just like that, I go and I hang this in a tree, and one after the other, the birds come. First the sunbirds, once they've had a drink, all the other birds come, and that becomes the most attractive water in my neighborhood. The water changes color because something new, something other from the outside has been introduced and it interacts with everything that was there, transforming its nature. That's what Jesus did. That's what the church is doing, changing everything, transforming our nature. Let's get to the good part. How is heaven described in the Bible? The first thing that you'll notice about the way the Bible describes the place heaven is it appeals to our imagination through metaphors. This is wonderful news because heaven is beyond our ability to understand. With the language and the concepts we possess as human beings. If if it weren't, then heaven would be limited. It would be capped by the measure by which we could understand it. But thankfully, it's not. So you've got John. He's on the island of Patmos, and he's, he's penning the book of Revelation, and he gets this vision of heaven, and he's trying to write it down, and he does a really good job, but you can see by the text that he's struggling to describe just about anything. Uh, it, he's so restricted by the limitations of language, he's run out of superlatives. One writer said, when it comes to understanding heaven, we stand in front of a great ocean holding two teacups of water. And this is our understanding of the great ocean of heaven. But you know what? It's enough. What the Bible gives us is good enough. All right, Jesus on the final night, he's with the disciples. It's the eve of his crucifixion. And in John 14, 
verse one, two, three, this is what he says to his disciples the night before he's gonna be crucified. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it would not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. In this passage, Jesus is reassuring, he's consoling his disciples before he's gonna leave them. He weaves in this teaching that carries the hope heaven holds for them and for us. The first thing we see in this passage is that Jesus says, I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You see, for the disciple, heaven is where Jesus is. For the disciple, heaven is where Jesus is. Where Jesus is, it is heaven there. Paul's great hope of heaven is exactly the same, and he says this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse eight. He says, yes, we are of good, good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. At home with the Lord. It's like when I got married. I wasn't around much uh, just before our wedding day. I was working in the States. I was actually overseas five of the seven months before we got married. But there was a lot of stuff that had to be done. There's a lot of planning that had to, you know, what were the hymn sheets gonna look like? What songs are we gonna sing? What, am I gonna, what's, what suit am I gonna wear? What dress? What are the flowers gonna be? Who's gonna sit there? Who's gonna say what? Who's gonna be at this? Who's, there was so much planning going on uh, before I arrived. What songs are we gonna dance to? What's gonna be the first song? What is the color scheme of, but me, right? On the day when Wagner's bridal chorus starts to play, I'm focused on one thing and one thing only. I'm in that church and I see my bride walking towards me and everything else fades away in comparison to the beauty and the splendor of my bride. So it'll be when we see Jesus. The streets of gold will have small attraction to us. The music of angels will but slightly enchant us compared with the king in the midst of the throne. He it is who shall rivet our gaze, absorb our thoughts, enchain our affection, and move all our sacred passions to their highest pitch of celestial ardor. We shall see God, Spurgeon. Yes. Amen. You see, amen. it's gonna be like home with family. It's gonna be like home with family. Jesus speaks of the Father's house with a place for us. It's a place where we belong. It's a place with beloved family. Jesus is speaking in plural for his disciples. You see, to Jesus, the the. the, the Christian brothers and sisters were closer than even blood brothers and sisters to Jesus. And there's a part of this verse that we miss because we don't always understand the context and Jesus' context is different to ours. At Jesus' time, when a man's in love with a woman and, and, and he wants to get engaged and he asks her to marry him and she says yes, okay, then he goes to his father's house and together with his family, they build a house on the property of his father's house, right? And they get it all built because that's where him and his wife are gonna live, there 
on that, on that property there. And then once that house is built, he goes back to his bride-to-be. And then the cer- ceremony begins, and the celebration begins, and, and they have the wedding ceremony. And once they are married and the ceremony is over, he will take her to her new family, to that wider tribal clan of his, and they will begin their new life together. In Israel, many of the houses are still built like this. You see, Jesus went to the cross and to the Father, and there he prepares a place for us, his bride, to be with him. And as we saw last week as Don preached, he will return, and he's gonna take us home, and we will be in family in the purest and most beautiful sense of family. Some of you have never known a family like this. It's gonna be like family like you've always dreamed of. And Jesus is right now, he's he's there in heaven, he's on the right hand of God, and he's interceding, he's praying for us, but he's gonna come back and he's gonna fetch us. Here's John's revelation of heaven. It's a long passage, and I'm gonna bounce around between Revelation chapter 21 and Revelation chapter 22, so bear with me. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he carried me away to the spirit, in the spirit, to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's it's radiance, like a most rare jewel, like, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God and the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and light will be no more. They They will need no lamp, no light or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. You see, there's so much mystery here. The description is limited by both our limited ability to understand and comprehend, and of course, this, this was written 2,000 years ago. It's limited by our understanding of that time too and the language they had then. So are you ready for the real shocker? A new heaven and a new earth, where are we gonna live? On the new earth, not in heaven. The sense in which I'm using the word heaven here is to describe our ultimate state of being with God, that's gonna be heaven, to be with God. Not the physical place, that's gonna be the new heavens and the new earth. All that we're describing today is taking place on an earth which has been restored and redeemed and transformed by God into its perfect state. It's a place of unmatched beauty. It's a place of unmatched beauty. John describes its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Heaven defies description. These are John's attempts using language to describe something far greater than his words can describe. It's the most beautiful, glorious, radiating place, the kind of place you never get tired of looking at. 
And you're always in awe of its splendor. There's no temple there because Jesus himself is its light and center. John carries on. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. God's glory radiating through his creation, undiminished, undefiled, perfect, and we will be living in it. There are in all likelihood all sorts of natural wonders to be seen, like this great high mountain that John speaks about. I'm looking forward to climbing it. But heaven is also defined by what's not there. Heaven is also defined by what's not there. The absence of evil and suffering and death. There is no devil, there is no evil, there is no sin, therefore there is no pain, there is no suffering, no death, no crying, no mourning, all are no more. The only tears you'll see in heaven are the tears of joy. I struggle to imagine what that's gonna be like. We're so limited by our own experience. But picture it and let that homesickness start to well up. Tolkien, he writes this in The Return of the King. Don plagiarized the title for his sermon last week. But uh, in the final moments of this incredible trilogy, you, you've got Frodo and Samwise Gamgee. They, they're, they're, they've gone to, to Mordor and they've gone to Mount Doom with the, the, the one ring to rule them all. And they've got to destroy this ring. But they, they know it's a task that's gonna kill them because how do you get out of Mount, uh, Mount Doom? And, and they eventually, you know, the ring ends up in the lava and, and gets swallowed up and gets consumed. And, and they're lying on this rock uh, and the lava's flowing all around them and they're getting weaker and weekend, they know they're gonna die, right? But Gandalf, he comes on, on the wings of an eagle and he swoops down and he picks up Frodo and he picks up Sam and, and off they go, shoo, and he saves them. And Frodo and Sam, they wake up, all right? They're not in the shy yet, but they wake up. And this is what Sam says, he wakes up first because Frodo's very weak. He says, at last, he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad? going to come untrue, what happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. As, and the sound was like, yeah, it's water in a parched land. Let's just leave it at that, otherwise I'll read the whole book. Um, <laughs> where am I in my notes? Um, everything sad is going to come untrue. A great shadow has departed. This means that all the people in heaven will have been so transformed by the power of Christ that we will have no desire that would lead us to hurt anyone else. Our natures will be so characterized by love and selflessness and humility and a value of others. Stop for a second and imagine that. In his letter to the Hebrews, it's described like this. Hebrews 8 verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after all those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. St. Augustine once said, love God and then do as you please. Love God and then do as you please. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Last Battle. Um, it's kind of hard to quote these guys and then pretend I can write a sermon well. Um, 
I believe Netflix is gonna make the whole series. So the movies that have come out, we don't have this one yet, uh, but I'm looking forward to it. It's the last book of the Narnia se series, and the characters, I, I should do a spoiler alert before I, I get up and speak, right. So the characters, the, these kids, they've all reached Aslan's country, right? So they're finally in Aslan's country. And Lucy declares, I have a feeling we've got to the country where everything is allowed. You try for a second and you imagine yourself without sin. You're never gonna be tempted again. Sin will be detestable to you, not desirable. It'll be impossible to be insecure. Never feeling threatened by another human being, never having to fight for your place in this world, always feeling like you belong. Not to have a shred of a sense that you're on the outside with everybody else on the inside. In heaven, you will not envy. In heaven, there will be no anxiety. Who needed to hear that this morning? No addictions, no depression. You will not be scared of strangers. In fact, you'll be thrilled to meet them. You will not fear anything. Back to Lewis's book, In the Last Battle. Isn't it wonderful, said Lucy, have you noticed that one can't feel afraid even if one tries? Try it. By Jove, one can't, said Eustace after he had tried. I'm gonna read Aslan's ending to the whole series. Aslan, the dream is ended. This is the morning. As he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were in the beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before it. Amen? You see, it's not just that evil stops. I want you to, I want you to picture, grasp this. It's, it's not just that it ceases. It's not just one wave a wand and it's gone, but rather suffering will be swallowed up and healed by Christ, because Christ came as a human, God stepped into this broken humanity, and because Christ died on the cross, he took on our sin, and he suffered, and through this gospel, evil is actually undone. It is picked apart, stitch by stitch. Every tear is wiped away. The healing, transforming work of Christ will retrospectively undo all that has happened through evil. Absolute healing. Isaiah 25 puts it like this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain, he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. 
and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will, he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Creation will be restored. There will be an abundance, beauty, and deliciousness. No more lack. The pictures of, in the Bible is of this feast with delicious food and, and well-aged wine, and we're gonna swirl it in the glass and, and breathe in that nose. We'll live in plenty. There will be no lack. There's no shortage. There is enough for everyone. No one is hungry, wondering what they're gonna feed their kids, how they're gonna make ends meet at the end of the month. There's no fight for resources at the expense of others. We will have bodies that will not decay. Time will not tick on. A day will be like a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. So then how should we live? How then should we live? In the prologue to Revelation 1, John is uh, writing these visions and this, he's about to write that incredible vision of heaven. And he's sitting on the island of Patmos. Most of his friends have, have been martyred They've been beheaded or they've been crucified upside down or they've been stoned to death. And John is now in exile. He's on his own. He's had to leave his home and his family and he's penning, penning this revelation that God gives him. And he says this in verse seven, in verse nine, sorry. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Why was John there? He was there for the sake of the gospel and the testimony of Jesus. So I ask you this morning, why are you where you are? What on the world are you doing? Set your life on following Christ because heaven is God's home, the place that most captures his glory. Heaven cannot primarily exist for our sake. I know this seems obvious, but often we think of heaven in a selfish or self-centered way, but we think of heaven as like a, a pleasure factory purpose of heaven cannot be to make us happy or, or offer us earthly pleasures that we so long for because it's much bigger than that. It is much greater than that and better than that. Like a bride coming down the aisle and the groom is looking past at the flowers and at the suits and he misses the very reason that he's there. It's possible that some of you might see this as a bit of a downer. It's possible that the idea of being with Jesus doesn't make your heart skip a beat. It may not be the most exciting thing you could hope for, but this is because maybe you don't really know Jesus. You may not comprehend what he did for you on that cross. You may not know him as your savior and as your Lord. My message for you today is clear. Come to Christ, the one who is the very source of everything good and lovely and beautiful. Everything else good in this world is like a postcard that is designed to bring us to the very destination that is Christ. To be with him is to be in heaven. I mentioned my years as an exchange student, just a funny side story. So I was sentenced to five years hard labor, labor at Bergfield High School down the road. And um, <laughs> they never had a basketball team, but I took to basketball because I made friends with a few missionaries, uh, Mormon missionaries from the LDS church at Park and Shop. And after school, I used to go down and play basketball with these guys, and they were fantastic. They taught me a few little moves. So knowing that I'm heading to America, 
I, uh, the school asked me to write a bit about myself, and I said, uh, you know, I'm on the school's basketball team, which we had made a little basketball team. It was an unofficial team. Oh, and the vice captain of the basketball team. Well, you can imagine how excited that school in America got. They were getting a six-foot-one African who's the vice captain of his basketball team. <laughs> so when I arrived there, the first thing I noticed was their disappointment as they looked at the tone of my skin. And then at the first practice, they put it down to jet lag. <laughs> but eventually, the truth set in. I did not belong on their first team or their D team. I was not close to their skill level, and I didn't get into any team at the school. I was not good enough. Now, let me ask you, what would happen if you got to heaven now, if, 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 as you are, just as you are, if Jesus put you and I into heaven as we are currently? Well, heaven would cease to be heaven, right? It'll be only a matter of time because before I start to see all the wonder and the beauty as something I could use for my benefit or I try to get more of it for myself. It would only be a matter of time before I said something hurtful or did something that brought a tear to somebody's eye. I would have to filter what's inside of me so that I could look like I belong in these perfect surroundings because it wouldn't be long before I realized I don't belong. I'd feel out of place. It would be like living with a secret every moment of every day aware of how I don't belong in this place feeling like an imposter all the time, waiting for somebody to find out that I don't belong. Because you see, I'm not perfect. I'm not even close. Of sinners, I'm the worst. It's impossible to change your own heart to, to, to the place where you could truly, perfectly fit in there. But Jesus made a way. John 14, verse six, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Through Jesus, he supernaturally, outside of our own doing or deserving, he undertakes to transform our hearts. Heaven invades our earthly heart and reforms me in ways I'm incapable of doing on my own. Augustine, he describes the work of the gospel like this. Posse pecare, non posse non pecare, posse non pecare, non posse pecare. In English, able to sin in the Garden of Eden. They were able to sin. Not able to not sin after the Garden of Eden. Able to not sin, thanks to Jesus Christ and the strength that he gives us. Unable to sin, heaven. We will be unable to sin. Let this perspective transform you in the here and now. Let's take a coin. We hold it close up to our eye. Now it kind of becomes the only thing that we see. It's kind of overwhelming. It's so there. But is it a big coin? No. If we just change the perspective, and if we can see our life on earth like we see this coin and everything else, that's what I wanted to show you today. Let this coin, this life, have its appropriate place in the context of your true home, your ultimate reality, everything else. Resolve, like Edwards, to do everything now in this life that will serve your eternity. Set your standards by the standards of heaven.
Set your mind on the things above. Your spiritual formation matters more than ever because of our ultimate destination. As Christ follows, we should be doing everything we can to create a space in our lives for Jesus to transform us now so that we can fit, be fit for the home he has prepared for us. Spiritual disciplines become more than chores and duties, but rather an opportunity to transform into our true and eternal selves. Build into your life now the habits and the practices of the ways of heaven. Practice for life in heaven now. Be a wise steward of your earthly wealth and your earthly time. Invest it in what has eternal value. Repent of sin. Heaven is the kind of place where people who want to sin will be miserable. So become the kind of person who wants heaven. Uninterrupted life with God is a problem for those who want the freedom to do the things they don't want God to see. In fact, in heaven, it'll be impossible to avoid God like we think we can now. You see, our issue with heaven isn't so much about getting in. Jesus took care of that. It's about becoming the kind of person for whom heaven would be an appropriate and welcoming setting. Give yourself now to the habits and practices that ready you for heaven. Heaven is a certain kind of community where humility and honesty and servanthood and generosity of spirit are as predictable as gravity is. John Ortberg. Let's freshly give ourselves to being a people who are pursuing a transformational way of life. Get more radical in how you live for Jesus. When we really understand Jesus' offer of heaven and eternal life with him, it won't look heroic. It'll be more matter of fact. Of course, this is how we should live and behave and what we should do. You see, heaven is only one key, faith, faith in Jesus. Entry is impossible, but for the grace of God. Live in appreciation of that grace. Now the Bible keeps telling us that we're just camping here, that we're nomads living in these tents. The dissatisfaction that mixings about, you're not gonna find perfect satisfaction in this life because our souls long for eternity. And I hope this, this clearer vision of heaven does make you homesick as you walk out of here because we're not home yet. How we long to breathe the air of heaven. We're gonna listen to a song now. As the song plays, it's one of my favorite songs at the moment by Phil Wickham, Hymn of Heaven. As the song plays, I want you to listen to the the words and just meditate on what you've heard this morning and get that picture and then when it's done, I'll, I'll get up and pray and we'll close it. You can go ahead and play the video, thanks.